Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of the Just Pod and to part two of student well-being. We're going to continue our conversation, but first let me reintroduce David Jaffe. Associate Dean for Student Affairs, American University, Washington College of Law. David is also a current member of the National Task Force on Lawyer Well-Being and the Vice Chair of the ABA Commission on Lawyer Assistance Programs Law School Assistant Committee. So let's talk about reluctance to seek help. Why would that be? What are the concerns? You touched on this already, but again, it bears repeating in its own time. Sure. So I think there are a couple perhaps in rank order. I think the biggest one is probably stigma. I will tell you that I was, I would say, almost constantly amazed. And because of the number of students I've counseled in this area, I've stopped to be. But in meeting with a student and I get to a point in a one-on-one conversation where I kind of look at them and say, I don't know if this is going to help you any, but you're not the first law student, first one of your classmates to come in this week and sometimes to come in today to sit down with me and close the door and say something's going on. It is amazing to me how sometimes quite visibly you see the students, you know, the shoulders sag a little bit in a good way and their eyes kind of brighten and and it's almost and sometimes spoken, but it's almost like a really, like I really thought I was the only one who was going through these issues. And so this really wraps itself around, again, around stigma and this notion that, you know, I'm the only one who's having this problem. And so it must be me and me only. And talking about it is not going to be met with receptive ears, be it to classmates or faculty or maybe even not my dean of students. And so I'm just not going to deal with it. And so that stigma, I think, is one of the really the high points in terms of a student's reluctance to seek help. But right along with it, and this was proven out by the survey, and anytime you meet with a student, you can hear these concerns as well. There is a perception that a student who seeks help while in law school is going to have to report that help on the bar and that as a result of reporting that help, the bar examiners are going to delay or deny admission for that applicant to begin the practice of law. And I say perception because from what we know, and unfortunately this is a terrific pressure point for others to consider, we don't have hard data on percentage of applicants who are delayed or denied admission around issues of substance use or mental health. But if you speak with bar examiners anecdotally, they will tell you sometimes they're counting on fingers, but they will tell you that there are relatively few applicants who are denied admission, certainly, and also few who are delayed admission. And those who may be delayed admission to the bar, delayed admission around substance use mental health issues are typically delayed because they've acknowledged on the bar exam that they are dealing or maybe not dealing, but are acknowledging some profound issue around mental health or substance use, and also acknowledging that they have not received help for it. That is a challenge for anybody. The bar examiner's almost sole task is to ensure that those who are admitted are prepared to serve in the jurisdiction to which they're being admitted. And if an applicant acknowledges that they've got a fairly profound issue and they're not seeking help, well, it's appropriate in that stage for a bar examiner to say, we want you to get help. You need it for yourself and you need it to be an attorney representing clients in our jurisdiction. 
that's an appropriate step. The challenge we have, and again, a lot of this is perception, but that there are a number of states and a number of questions that are still far too invasive that are asking questions about, have you ever been diagnosed? And diagnosed ever means years, potentially years and years back, and probing at a way and a level that the more perceptive, you know, 1L student looks at these questions and without knowing more says, gee, if they're gonna ask that type of a question and not really help explain what they're gonna do with it, it sounds like I'm gonna have a problem getting admitted to the bar. So the smartest thing I can do is not get help because then I don't have to worry about answering those questions. Well, by not getting help, we're back where we are with the first half of this podcast. We have a student who is not dealing with an issue and those problems are only getting worse. So there are a number of us who are looking to make an effort. There's, if I may, there's an article that I had the pleasure of co-authoring with a colleague of mine, Janet Stearns at University of Miami Law School that just came out that is really calling on states with the more invasive questions to roll back those questions. They're not only not helping our students, but they're also in a number of instances violative of the Americans with Disabilities Act because they've been deemed by the Department of Justice not to be uh, appropriate questions to be asking. We're asking those states to roll back those questions or if not, to state upon what grounds they believe that those questions continue to be legitimate. And we do believe that the more Again, I've mentioned perception a couple of times. We need to get to our students and say this is perception more than reality, but because we cannot guarantee that in any particular situation, an applicant may not get delayed or denied admission because we don't have that certainty, we need to work with the bar examiners in the states to get them to understand that the blunting of those questions or the more appropriate phrasing those questions will allow our students to get the help that they need in school and have them be the productive attorneys that the bar examiners are looking for. For those law students that plan to pursue criminal law, they will likely encounter significant stressors like secondary trauma. So is there any value to the fitness questions in helping law students determine if they're pursuing the right path? Though that may feel like it's too late for a student potentially, but as you think about fitness and what a person really is emotionally prepared to handle, what would you say to those students who are already experiencing mental health or substance abuse issues as law students who are preparing for a career in criminal law? So I would probably bring that question or the answer to that question in two, and you started to answer the second one. I don't think that the fitness questions themselves are an aid in identifying for students, gee, maybe this is an area, a path down which I should not go because there are going to be too many traumatic issues for me in that regard, both for the fact that the fitness questions for some come too late in the day, but also really not getting to the heart of the issue. The questions are still, as I said, are blocking a student from getting help in school. If this podcast were a 25-word podcast, I would start and finish by saying, get help while you're in school. It is the smartest and the best thing you can do for yourself. For students who are experiencing mental health or substance use issues, it may be ultimately that criminal law may not be the practice for them. But I would also submit to you for virtually any practice of law that is going to bring a client into the office for a student, and that's not all areas of practice, but for those which are certainly broader than criminal law, those clients oftentimes are going to be coming in with issues that go beyond the property concern or the wills concern or whatever it might be, they're typically coming in with baggage associated with it. And while it's not the attorney's role necessarily to be addressing that, they are going to be hearing as part of the intake and the ongoing conversations, some of the personal sides to it. And so I would still, while areas like criminal law may exacerbate or kind of magnify these potential issues coming up, to me, it still does come back to the student 
getting help in school. And then as they're getting help, they can be using that help and also looking at, you know what, I've been faced too many times with issues around fill in the blank, sexual assault, rape, abuse of other types, where whether it's something that affected me directly when I was younger or something that I've now understand for myself, I will not be able to face. Well, then, yes, then that is certainly a potential point of departure. We'll say maybe this isn't going to be the area of law for me. But the time to find that out is while in school, kind of working through some of the issues. And then, although one never really comes out of the issues entirely, as one is kind of working towards the wellness and whatnot, then one starts pairing, the student starts pairing, feeling a little bit better with looking at some of those areas where that student intends to be after law school and whether the particular substantive areas perhaps are going to be too heady for him or her to take on. And to think about that while in school, because it's the terrific opportunity to be looking at other substantive areas and and maybe moving further in that regard, in that direction. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily to try and intimidate anyone out of the (laughs) practice of criminal law by any means, but I think our next question is talking about recommendations for stress management, and you're saying get help while you're a law student, and I think that is the biggest answer to recommendations for stress management, but also as we talk about in more depth what some of the resources are that are available to students and recommendations put forward by the survey, it just also behooves the practice of criminal law, like you said, other practices of law, will bring stressors, period whether you have anything that you're going to feel personally triggered by or whatever it is. So it behooves any law student to learn good stress management strategies at this point, because for anyone who's been listening to our other parts of the series, attorneys and judges still experience well-being concerns. So it may not even have manifested itself as a law student, but surely at some point in time, there will be stressors that come and learning as a law student, how to develop those tools, how to develop your personal toolkit is going to benefit you in your profession, no matter what. Right. You're hundred percent correct. The stressors that students may be, or the catalyst of stressors that students may be facing in law school, some of them will go away. Some of them carry on into the profession. But as you just alluded to, as we're becoming young adults and then adults, the stressors just change. It's finding a relationship if one chooses and settling into it. It's potentially having a family and everything that comes with that, purchasing a house and a mortgage, balancing work and family and having a life and all those natures. So they, they shift into kind of adulthood and post-educational issues and stressors, but they're always going to be there. And the question is always going to be, what are we doing about it? And what are we doing best to take care of ourselves? So what does the survey recommend for the article that follows the survey? This part of it will probably not shock a lot of individuals. I may have my own bias, but it's certainly through the lens of meeting with and counseling. I have to assume thousands of law students at this point in time for myself. There's rarely an orientation that I have not overseen in the last, I don't know that I've missed any in the last 20 years where I've not at some point paused and kind of leaned into the microphone and said to the entering class, the best piece of advice I'm going to be able to give you. And then I will pause and say, this is just law school. And I'll pause again for effect and say not to minimize it. There are going to be stressors and factors, and it's going to be finishing school for a number of you, and it's going to be the pathway to employment and everything else. But it's just law school at the end of the day. And the sooner you can kind of proceed with that mindset, which is I can do this, but I also need to take it in stride, the better you're going to be. 
And you can sometimes walk a hallway or certainly meet with students and get a distinction between the students who've kind of gotten that and those who are still working through it. When I either am asked or invite students to break it down, all I'm really saying is bring forward those stress management techniques, some of which you may not have identified as such you're just doing, and some of which you may need to, if you didn't bring them forward, you may need some assistance from us or other resources to learn, but bring forward the techniques that had you operating as a human being prior to law school that will, we hope, have you returning or would have you continuing to be a human being post-law school. There's no reason not to be doing them while in law school. I think for me, and I'm a big advocate of this, I think the number one kind of stress management is mindfulness meditation or certainly breathing that's associated with it. Here at the Washington College of Law, we host two sessions each week that are free for students for the entire community, in fact, and we just invite students to come to those sessions and then to continue to practice at home. The entire art of being in the moment and being able to, again, breathe and focus and relax and just take some time out for oneself is critical. Yoga is obviously extremely helpful as well to have the mind and the body to kind of be in tune and to be relaxing. Our practices that most of us have been doing, but sometimes will give way when these other stressors are coming into play. So changing one's sleeping style, there's no reason for that. There's no reason to be picking up additional hours of studying when you're going to lose redeeming value at some point in time. The diet and the eating, as I said, is oftentimes quick to go. It doesn't mean you have to be a gourmand of some type, but you need to be thinking about kind of what your regular eating habits are in that regard. If you're a morning person in terms of studying, then study in the morning. If you're an evening person, study in the evening, but you can't all of a sudden convert yourself to an all-day law student 24-7. The outlets are extremely important. Somebody far more famous than me and maybe a couple of individuals have said or been quoted as saying that the opposite of depression is not happiness, but it's actually connection. And so if one were to subscribe to that, the notion of, again, not isolating, but actually being connected with others. And it doesn't necessarily need to be law students. It's helpful to have a cadre of classmates with whom you are working well and maybe studying well, but also doing some social things, but even connection to community to civic engagement. I had a student come to me two years ago and said, I've enjoyed gardening. Is there any place where I might be able to do something on the campus because it's a terrific outlet for me? And we built an entire community garden that this student was able to support for herself because it was working for her and it was easy for us to be able to do. And the laundry list can go on and on, whether it's running, it's exercising, it's keeping a journal, it's watching a movie and occasionally binge watching something that is not going to be negative and really affecting you health-wise and that you can do on a regular basis, in essence, to take the edge off and to continue to remind yourself, this is just law school. I am a human being and I can do these things. And I think one who is following one or several of those practices is going to find himself or herself in good shape. It's not a guarantee that the stressors are going to go away by themselves. And that's why we're always counseling and advising, checking in with your dean of students or a lawyer assistance program or the counselor if your law school is fortunate enough to have it or the university if the law school doesn't have it. They're not going to go away by themselves simply by managing the stress there, but they are going to be terrific aids towards being a healthier individual. Okay. And so you've already shared some of your experiences and observations as a dean of student affairs. Is there anything else that you've observed or experienced? Or are there any other anecdotes that you could share with our listeners that would help them personalize this or recognize something for themselves? Yeah. So I did give a couple of examples. I think what I would say 
rather than sharing the experience, but maybe gathering from those experiences um, for whether it's for a faculty member, for a loved one, for anybody who may be listening to this or passing along the information. I think the importance of follow-up is really, really critical. And again, it may be easier or more logical for a student-facing administrator such as myself or somebody else who's charged with working with a student. There is a lot to be said and a real good feeling and some of the best feelings I ever have are ending a meeting with a student who came in, maybe was referred by a faculty member, maybe it was a result of bad grades and they're looking for assistance, maybe they come in on their own, but making that connection with the student, for me to walk away from that meeting and knowing that the student trusted me enough to come in to be able to have the conversation is, I mean, it's at the heart of what I do. So maybe it's obvious it would have me feel good that way. But there's also, there's an obligation for me and there kind of ought to be a sense of obligation or at least understanding that the one and done is not always going to work. I mean, in some instances, if you know the individual is following up and seeking the resource that they need because you're in touch with that resource or whatever, then you know the path towards recovery or better well-being is taking place. But I find for myself, if I meet with a student, I put what I call a tickler on my calendar for a couple of weeks following. And that's assuming we didn't have an agreement to meet already. And it's just an opportunity for me to follow up and say, checking back in, hope you're doing okay. If you'd like to meet again, you know, let's do so. But at least drop me an email and let me know that things are going okay. And if I don't hear back from them, then it's certainly, I feel kind of duty bound to follow up. And if I do, they know that it wasn't more than, you know, I made an appointment with Dean Jaffe and I went in and he, he checked the box by meeting with me, but he cared enough to follow up and see what was going on. So I think my experiences and observations, I would say the number one is be, be empathic, listen to the individual when you're meeting with him or her, listen without judgment, listen all the way through, try to be helpful with resources, find out what the student might want in terms of follow-up. Would it be helpful for you if we set another meeting now? Would it be helpful for you if I follow up in a couple of weeks, which at least in my case, I'm probably going to do anyway, what is going to be the most meaningful for you so that I can assist you going forward? If you've made that first connection with somebody, they've either, again, either come to you or been sent to you for some reason, and your obligation, if you care about it, is to be responsive, to work with that individual and see them all the way through at the end of the day. And it is going to be as rewarding as anything that you can do. And what else should law students be mindful of as they watch out for early signs in themselves or their peers? I would say number one for a student, if you're not feeling yourself or the way you have been historically, and, and if historically you have felt just better about yourself and kind of your place around you and where you are, that's a sign of something. It's not simply a sign of, well, I'm in law school, I'm supposed to feel differently. I constantly kind of shake my head when I hear that law students are having a negative experience at law school. And, and not that we are the, you know, the winner at this institution. There are a number of law schools that I think do, do things incredibly well. And certainly we're gonna have law students here who are facing challenges regardless of programming and events and things that we do. But law school should not be a negative or an adversarial or any kind of, a, of, of an experience that is having you feel less well. And so the moment you're feeling that way, it's an opportunity to think about it and to check in with somebody else. And I also think it's really important I have found myself on a number of occasions, again, when meeting with students, and it starts to sound trite when I say it, but it seems to take on meaning when I get through it. I will say to a student, you know, our body is such an incredible thing, and we take for granted the fact that we can hear each other and how that works, and we can breathe and see and smell and do all the things that we do because it's just what we understand our body is supposed to do. 
well, part of what our body does on occasion, and you know, we can point to science and we haven't understood all of it, but depression oftentimes has its roots in substance use and drinking oftentimes it has its roots in genes and hereditary nature through generations and others. And it's oftentimes, it is, they are diseases at the end of the day, including drinking. And they're oftentimes things that we don't have the power to control when they overtake us. And so rather than blaming ourselves, if we see that we're starting to feel this way, it is not the time to kind of isolate. It's not the time to assume, well, I'm responsible for this, so I've got to figure my way out. Rather, it's the time to kind of say, my body's really never done this before. And as incredible as my body's been, it's either telling me or doing something that I need to do something about and I need to get help for because it's not something that's automatically going to repair itself. And so I think just kind of taking those things together, it's a matter of being in touch with oneself, of appreciating that self-care is not some trite, you know, kind of, you know, throwback in the day type thing. It's really, it's really grounded in what we need to be doing as human beings. And given this topic, no more so as law students when there's so many new things coming at us that we're trying to tackle and, and overcome and succeed at simultaneously. Well, that's certainly helpful. Are there any other resources that are available online that law students can look at that can help them through this process of seeking help or just give them, you know, if they feel like they're just in the early stages and maybe don't feel like they're at a point where they need to start meeting with anyone, is there anything that we could point them toward? Sure. A couple of resources. I've mentioned the lawyer assistance programs once or twice, again, and they're oftentimes called LAPS. Some of the states have slightly different titles. So Pennsylvania is called the Lawyers Concern for Lawyers or LCL. But these are organizations, again, that exist throughout the country. They are free to law students, and they are also confidential. The LAPS are barred from sharing information unless there is an imminent threat you know, of serious harm to self or to another. Those can be found through the COLAP website, so the COLAP or the Commission Lawyer Assistance Programs is an ABA organization that's kind of an umbrella that brings the LAPS together. Students can find that under ambar.org slash COLAP or can just Google COLAP, C-O-L-A-P. Right. Um, one of the other resources that I would point out, and I give credit to the ABA Law Student Division, which continues to focus on well-being in all sorts and fashions. And so the Law Student Division has been adding kind of links and resources to its page. And it's a wonderful place for students who are seeking help to look for it. And also, if they are maybe somebody who's in recovery or maybe not even recovery, but is looking to help a classmate, could look to see what the law student division is doing and volunteer to help in that regard. And then one other valuable component, which maybe be a harder one to see, but I it didn't go to notice when you kind of made the very astute comment that students may be in need of help, but not ready to seek it out. I would add to that, that oftentimes they're not ready to seek it out from a professional. So it may be the dean of students or a private counselor or even the lawyer assistance program, despite the confidentiality. I've been fortunate here at the Washington College of Law to have a couple of students who have come to me who are in recovery and who have offered as part of their recovery and just their sincere desire to work with students who perhaps are not ready to work with the professional. And I'm fine with that so long as the student is at least kind of unofficially certified, if not having met with a lawyer assistance program or gone through some level of understanding of kind of the limits to what they can bring in terms of a resource to a student. And so we make an effort to kind of regularly provide information. We don't put the names out there, although I think the students in recovery would allow us to, but basically say, if you're looking to find these students, we can connect you with the students and you can speak with them directly without our intervention. So if you are a student who may be looking for that, you could check with your student bar association, 
you could check anonymously with your dean of students and see if he or she has got those connections. And that may really not only help you realize that you've got classmates who are going through some similar things, but also allow you to start yourself on the path towards understanding a little bit better what's going on and taking the steps you need for yourself towards well-being. Thank you. You've given us a lot of information and a lot of resources, and we really appreciate you taking the time and feel the sincerity in your motives for just genuinely trying to help law students. And I think for myself, two of the takeaways are just, if you feel like you're alone in your struggle, you're certainly not. The fact that this survey happened, that this task force exists, is just your first line of evidence there that you're not alone in your struggle. And then secondly, there's resources. So should it feel insurmountable, it's not. And start taking steps towards seeking help or finding those resources. So Absolutely. I think as law schools and the legal profession goes, I think we are in the thick or certainly at the head of a movement towards greater well-being. Mm-hmm. I think podcasts like these and anytime we can get word and publication and scholarship and things out around it, the more we're talking about it, the better off we're all going to be. And I'm very optimistic about the future for law schools and for students who are working through these issues. Yeah. And honestly, we all benefit when any industry is taking better steps towards well-being. So. Agreed. Thank you again for your time. We really appreciate it and for your insights, of course. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.